0: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I could not be more honored to say Willkommen to our guest, Joel Gray. Joel Gray is a Broadway legend who needs no introduction. So without further ado, here is our conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Happy to. The first thing I want to ask you about is, the way you started performing was in vaudeville, which was a field that your father was already famous in, Mickey Katz. So what did you learn about performing from those early days? I think the,
1: the thing that I learned that was most important from my dad was that he thought that the audience was entitled to everything. He was so responsible, he was essentially a musician. And when he would play for events, if there was one person on the dance floor, he would continue playing. He just thought it was his job and his duty. And I have that feeling about an audience as an actor. I feel the same responsibility.
0: So what kind of things other than that, that you learned in those days, do you find yourself still applying up to today when you act?
1: It's having to do with the theater. Yeah. And performing. It's something that you just, every experience that's new is, a learning time and the skill that you have, like if you have to uh, fence in a Shakespearean play and you don't know how to do that, well, you study and then it becomes one of your crafts. It comes in your body.
0: And in your early career, how did you, or where did you study acting and singing?
1: Oh, at the Cleveland Playhouse. But no, no singing. I never thought I was gonna sing anything. And I fought all the way. And eventually ended up singing everything.
0: So tell us about some of those early shows you did at the Cleveland Playhouse.
1: Well, I was Little Black Sambo. Uh, I was uh, a wolf in Red Riding Hood. Uh, One of my bigger, more famous roles. Come over here, little girl. (laughs) And um, how's your grandmother? And then I I got a part in the in the uh, the, the grown up theater, and uh, I got this part in a play called On Borrowed Time, and my character's name was Pud, and it changed my life. It was one of the best parts I've ever had, and he uh, yeah, had. He got laughs and the audience cried and he went to heaven and then he spoke to us from there. So you mean it was a part that you couldn't really dream of for a nine-year-old. How old are you?
0: I'm 13.
1: When are you gonna be 14?
0: Um, not for a long time. I'm only always- <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay.
0: So, who were some of your early acting mentors and inspirations?
1: Laurence Olivier, um, Peter Laurie, who was a great character actor. Uh, but I think Olivier was a role model and the kind of theater person, he was a total theater person. Of course, that was never, that sort of life was never offered to me, because it was something that was very much for the British theater. They had a, uh, a much more committed life and the actors are highly respected. They become lords.
0: Yeah. So talk about performing in some of the early vaudeville things you did, some of which were on Broadway, like Borscht, Capades.
1: Oh, you like the name, don't you?
0: Yeah, I do.
1: It's good. And uh, um, contrary to public belief, it was not people skating on Borscht. (laughs) Believe me. But it was, a, it was a variety show with the comedians and dancers and singers. And um, was, it was really a great experience in that. I was, I was out there with grownups who were knocking them dead. And my father was the boss. So I I couldn't disappoint. So the pressure was great, but it, it made me learn.
0: And what kind of things did you do?
1: Well, this was my opening song. When I was eight days old, they named me Yosel. Oh, what a simcha, such a celebration. Oh, my mishpocha! drank a toast, l'chaim, while I was suffering a minor operation. And later on, I went to kindergarten. I said, teacher, Yossel is my name. She said, the name of Yossel sounds like a shlamosel. From Yossel, my name became told
0: That was so great. See, my father had an
1: idea. He wanted me to be, you know, funny and precocious. And I wanted to be on the stage. I just loved it.
0: Your first Broadway show in a play was replacing in Neil Simon's play, Come Blow Your Horn. So what was it like to...
1: It was hell. It was horrible. It's terrible to replace people, and I ended up replacing a lot of people in my life because they want you to do it exactly as it was done by the originator. And that's very difficult. If you have any kind of an original take yourself, Um, it's squelched. You know, don't do it that way, the timing is wrong. Everybody else knows it this way, uh, but I did it and paid my dues
0: if you what were some of the things you would have wanted to do with that roller little chap or half a sixpence that you were placed in well
1: once again it's, it was that challenge of following someone else's performance. And they, because it's a lot of work, they don't want you to do it your way. They want you to fall in line and toe the line. And, um, that's stressful. But then eventually I got to create my own work and they made other people do that. Oh, do it like Joel. You know, but
0: yeah.
1: it goes around.
0: <laughs> what were your auditions like for these early shows? Did people already know who you were?
1: No, no, and um, for Stop the World, because they thought I was a comedian from television and that I was too young to play Little Chap, I put the makeup on in another theater and walked through Schubert Alley, made up as a clown. No one even knew me. And I sang, what kind of fool am I? And got the job.
0: So what was it like in that show to have to do a real, not just a leading performance, but a tour de force too? Great,
1: I loved it. I, I had seen it in London, and I knew immediately that I wanted to do it. But of course, my agent called and they said, no. So I put the makeup on, and they didn't know who I was. And that was that.
0: So who were some of the people you worked with in your early career who were helpful to you?
1: Um, I had wonderful acting teachers, and I studied at the Neighborhood Playhouse, and um, Wynne Handman and Sanford Meisner. There's a wonderful documentary on Netflix about the Neighborhood Playhouse and Wynne Handman, who just passed away. It's really good.
0: I'll look for it.
1: Yeah, yeah, you'll like it.
0: So when you were mentioning that you did some comedy on TV as well, how was it different to do that than it was to do a show or comedy similar to that on stage?
1: I was I was always struggling with doing comedian or doing what's expected of a comedian. It was not one of the not one of the talents that I had was to uh, think of a funny joke at the Moment, or you know, just pre-associate. I like to have a script and uh, a form. I, I I never liked being by myself on the stage in a nightclub. Hated it. It was nothing I ever wanted to do, and yet I was I was forced to do it by necessity for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then I got to play this guy, who I, I could put all my horrible feelings of the past into this one horrible character, the MC.
0: Yeah, so now I want to ask you about playing the MC. How did you audition for that? How did you get the role? I didn't. It's, it's
1: the only role that I did not audition for. Hal Prince was a friend and he, he had seen me in Stop the World. And we just, you know, knew our families, my w- wives and children were all very close. And he had this idea from seeing me in Stop the World, probably that I could play this master of ceremonies, but I didn't want to do it. It, it was a solo performance in a way.
0: Yeah.
1: There was no role. It was, I had to make it all up in my mind. And so when I came on to do a number, when I went off, I wanted the audience to think, where'd he go? What's he doing, that sleaze ball?
0: Yeah. So now we think of the MC as such an iconic character, but you had to sort of create how it was done. So, how did you, together with Hal Prince, sort of create the character?
1: Um, imagination. And I remember there was a a comedian that I saw once when I was on the road, who was so terrible. He was so cheap. He would lower his pants for a laugh. And I thought, why are they laughing? Why does the audience love him? I don't want to ever see his face or his act again. I thought, he's the creepiest. And then I thought to myself, maybe that's what this MC is like. Creepy. Mm.
0: What do you think- Everybody
1: likes to creep, right?
0: Yeah. So what do you think made Cabaret so successful and your portrayal of that role so successful?
1: Well, first of all, it was politi- politically so powerful. And to tell that story of the Nazis um, was an unusual subject for a musical, right? And um, it almost was like if you went to Germany and you heard that there was some sleazy outrageous nightclub where you would see things that you'd never imagined you could see, and you'd want to go. And people flocked to watch all this insanity.
0: So how did you sort of do the role differently when you did it as a film with Bob Fosse at the helm? It
1: It was the same guy, same MC, Older, tireder, deeper, meaner. He actually, if you read it, my book, and I think guess you did,
0: yeah.
1: he did not want me for the film. He wanted to create it from scratch. And that's fair. You know, that, that happens often. But Um, I had to really, I had to work a lot by myself. And I think he was a brilliant director, but he sort of let me go and created an atmosphere for this guy that was phenomenal. And then, of course, Liza was so much fun And like my little sister.
0: So the next show you did on Broadway, which was George M., in which you returned to sort of more of a vaudeville style. So how did you research Cohen and what he was like?
1: Well, James Cagney was my hero in the movies. And um, so I just wanted to be somewhat as good as he was and I didn't know how to tap dance so I went every day to work with this terrific teacher and uh, it was very difficult tapping the choreography and for a novice uh, you don't want it believe me you don't want that challenge yeah so I had to, I had to uh, give the impression that I was the greatest tap dancer in the world. when well, I couldn't really tap dance. So in order to remember and stay focused on stage when I'm, they're supposed to be looking at this great tapper, I would go downstairs under the stage every night before the show, and run through my routine to make sure it was still in my feet.
0: And I saw that recently at Encores, you recreated that routine again on stage. Was it still in your feet even all those years later?
1: You saw that? Yeah,
0: I did, I did.
1: It was so much fun. It was great to, you know, go back to that.
0: So one of the next shows you did was Good Time Charlie, which you say in your memoir, you were disappointed by it not being as successful as it deserves to be. What do you think makes a show successful or not? What do you think separated that from, say, Cabaret, which was one of the greatest successes?
1: There is no reasonable answer. If we knew that, there would be no flops.
0: So in your memoir, you called it an unlikely show, which it was. What appealed to you about doing a show set in the 15th century so long ago?
1: Sounded like fun. Yeah. You know, I'm a big one for fun.
0: And how did you sort of, you did this in George M. Um, Two? How did you sort of approach playing a real person in a musical?
1: Um, it's all about imagination. Everything about the stage. It's about your dreams and your hopes and wondering about what was he really like? What did he do? How did he get through this?
0: Mm. And In the next show you did was the Grand Tour on which you worked with Jerry Herman. And that show had a lot of revisions and edits. So was it hard for you to keep up with that or
1: I had no choice. There was nothing to do. But that's what working on a musical out of town. Yeah. They go and they change and they you learn a song that afternoon and put it in that night. It's really fascinating and grueling.
0: Do you think it's possible for there to be too much work done on a show?
1: Good question. Um, Hasn't been my experience. Where we went in with a wonderful show and beat it to death and (laughs) made it less good.
0: Has there been any show that you've done that you haven't been so in love with the material or do you try to only do shows that you would want to see even if you weren't in them? Yeah, I only
1: did things I wanted to do eventually. When I got to do it at all, I said, okay, let's do it.
0: Hmm. So it meant a lot to me to reading your memoir about coming out. So how did you deal with sort of doing that while still doing shows and things like that?
1: It was a very, always been, you know, it was just a story that I didn't think had anything to do with anybody else, but my family and myself. And um, the times changed so much over the 30 or 40 years I was on the stage. And uh, it was just, it was natural, the time.
0: So next I want to ask you, when you do a role in a revival of a show, as you did in Chicago and later Anything Goes, how much do you try to find out about the original or do you?
1: (laughs) Nothing. No, I mean, one hopes always to make something fresh because no one wants to see the historical antique. And um, so that was never a problem.
0: So later in your career in Anything Goes, did you have to return to dancing again?
1: Yeah, I did. But I had such a great co-star and we had the best time. So it was a joyous.
0: So, when you worked on both of those shows, had you seen them before in other productions, or?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Both. Both Chicago and Anything
1: else? Uh huh. I saw Chicago when you know Fosse first did it, and. Um, you know, it keeps candor and ebb. It's always good.
0: Yeah, I agree. So, what do you think were your sort of new takes as you were talking about on those two roles?
1: Well, I hadn't seen either of those shows in maybe 20 years. You know, so there was a long enough time for, for me not to remember anything. <laughs>
0: So when you did Wicked, you played another character, somewhat like the MC who's sort of flashy, but underneath kind of evil. So how do you sort of find both layers and make sure they're both apparent?
1: Just intelligence and director, the creating, creative people, you yeah, talk about it, talk about the character. And um I, I I said to Stephen Schwartz when we began, I said, it seems that there's something that we would be nice to know about this bad guy, and that is that he was sentimental. And that was the birth of that song. I am a sentimental man.
0: So how do you think, in creating a show, how do you think the process or your specific process has changed from when you did Cabaret or even earlier to now when you did The Cherry Orchard, which was your most recent show?
1: I don't think anything has changed, except if you're any good and if you're, if you challenge yourself to not do the same thing and to try something new, it's its very often satisfying.
0: So you started directing later in your career with The Normal Heart, The Revival of the Normal Heart. So that was a show that you'd acted in originally and then you returned to later to direct. So how did that sort of give you a context, context for doing it?
1: Well, um, it was a memorable time in the original. It was so controversial, so terrifying for the audience and the actors to be telling a story that was ongoing at the moment and that the New York Times wouldn't write about it. As as an event, or as a, a horrible pandemic, and um, so we were in we were in hot water, and the audience came in in hot water, and we all faced it together.
0: In directing the revival, how did you sort of? It's a very different time now than it was then. As you were talking about, how did you sort of still? How did you approach it differently than you would have if you were directing it back then in 1985?
1: I don't, I don't think that there is a plan afoot. You come with more experience, more life knowledge, and you'll see in five or six years, you're going to see things differently. And that's what you're going to reflect.
0: Mm-hmm. So in your directing, which you've done a few times since then, what do you think you've learned or took from directors who you worked with as an actor?
1: I've worked with a couple of really good directors. And, uh, at, and the thing I look for is uh, support and uh, empathy for the character, and the ability to be surprised and to come up with something you never thought you might.
0: So I want to ask you, of all the shows that you've done, which are so many and all such legendary productions, you talked about how you are a big fan of doing things that are fun. What do you think has been the most fun to work on of all the shows you've done?
1: On borrowed time. When I was nine years old. How bad could it be?
0: Yeah. Why do you think that was? It
1: was a great role, and you know, all the, I've had so much luck in playing interesting characters, and uh, it's like being a, an inspector you know, figuring out the, the math and the psychology of these people that you put out there to tell a story and change people's minds.
0: So the last thing I want to ask you about is your most recent directing credit, Waitrose Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. So what was it that compelled you to do that? Well, it's
1: already been done in Yiddish, but... No, I, I didn't know any Yiddish. I did not speak Yiddish. Or understand it. I knew songs with Yiddish words, but it was never my specialty. And, um... I said... I, lo- I had loved that show forever. And, uh... And my father instilled a, um, a respect and adoration for the language. It was so colorful and rich and emotional. And when Solomon Lotek called me, he said, um, would you like to play Tevye or would you like to direct it? And I said, well, I don't, I don't speak Yiddish. But let me think about it. And I said, I'll call you in the morning. And I kept thinking about how connected to that show and how emotionally available I was always to it. It's one of my favorite shows in the history and I called him in the morning and I said, no, I, I, I really thought about it and I don't speak Yiddish or understand it, but I know this play and I know this character, this Tevya. And um, if you'll have me, I'll do it. Mm. So one
0: thing, so one thing I about that production was how you made it so much more raw and powerful emotionally. How do you think you did that?
1: I think I I realized that the drama of the Tevye stories uh, got popularized by the musical, and it it kind of became something that was more of a um, a family event or a, a, a show that everybody could understand. And I thought to myself, we know the story of Tevye. And I knew what this, every scene was about. And I also thought about Chekhov. And I started working with the cast and the actors and everybody on the essences of these characters of what they were going through, and um, I guess I I looked at it like a play. And you know, then we added the music and the dance, and but meanwhile, all the actors a lot of whom had never been on the stage um, got excited about the language and the fact that it was precious and that we would be saying words that were historic. I never doubted it. I didn't know that it would be a, a big success and... Go uptown, uh, but I had such wonderful actors, and all the non-Jewish performers were so committed, and they under- and they got it, and they worked so hard on me. the pronunciation. Um, was amazing. It was. A, a once-in-a-lifetime experience.
0: Yeah, I really loved seeing it. So I want to ask you, looking back on your whole career, is there a role ever that you passed up or just simply didn't audition for that you wish you could have done or want to still do? Yes. Can
1: Richard Third. You- mm-hmm. I had sort of counted on sometime during my career, that I could go off and do that, and, and figure that out, and the opportunity never came.
0: And then the last thing I want to ask you is, after being such a huge part of the golden age of Broadway, what's something you would want to make sure that theater people of today remember?
1: Mm, good question. Like which shows?
0: no like something about creating theater or the process that you would want people to not forget
1: well that you know we didn't invent the theater you know yeah when audiences come in all the actors are part of a past of an experience of a uh, important part of society. So it's about the ongoing passing of the torch, like we'll hopefully do next fall.
0: Yeah, hopefully. So thank you so much for doing this interview. It was an honor for me to be able to hear all your stories and your songs. Listeners, thank you too for tuning in, and remember to come back on Monday when we are joined by Broadway choreographer Joshua Bergass. Bergass is the Emmy-winning choreographer of Smash. His work has also been seen on Broadway in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, On the Town and Gigi, and off-Broadway in Sweet Charity, Cagney, and at the Pirates of Penzance at Barrington Stage. Thank you for tuning in.